Good evening and welcome. This is A Reason for Hope and we are live with you for the next hour uh, receiving your questions on God's Word, the Bible. If you have questions on the Bible, perhaps say passages of Scripture um, that you'd like to delve into more, perhaps you're going through something in your life and would like a biblical perspective or even um, world events, um, those questions are all open to you. We're here to humbly seek the Lord in his word with you, and we're very glad that you are with us. And speaking of with us, with us in the studio today, we have our regular here, Pastor yeah. Sean Richards. How are you doing? Doing good. Had a very uh, lengthy weekend. First time I've been to a convention speaking on those matters, but uh, turnout was not beyond what was expected, and good conversations were had, and about the gospel, so hopefully won't return void. Well, amen to that. And also Senior Pastor Scott Richards, how hey. are you doing today? Oh, fantastic. It's, it's uh, always a pleasure to kick off the week talking about God's Word. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. We're here Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. And you can join us uh, in multiple ways. If you're listening to us on Reach Radio, you're listening to our previous show, Pre-Recorded. Um, so consider joining us sometime if you're not on your drive time on some of our live uh, platforms, which I will share with you. A Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, where our broadcast is uh, originating from here today. So you can find us at calvarychristianfellowship.com. Follow the Watch, uh, watch Now or Watch Live tab there. Also on Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship, you'll find us live there as well. And we have an app uh, that you can watch us on your mobile device. So go to your app store and look for Calvary Christian Fellowship. Also on Roku and Apple TV, should you want to watch us on the big screen, and why wouldn't you, I, I would say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> more uh, of us. That's right, more yeah. of us. Yeah. I might, there, might be a, there might be too much of us, but yeah. um, uh, on YouTube, we're at uh, A Reason for Hope. You can join us uh, there as well. And so please do, and also before I forget, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out, at gmail.com. If you are listening to us on the radio, do send your questions uh, via email, and we will get to them on our next uh, broadcast, Lord willing. So any of those platforms, just go to the chat function, send us your questions. I will be monitoring those as they come in, and we'll endeavor to get to all those questions. So yes, the show is completely guided by your questions. It will go whichever direction it goes. We just ask that they are honest questions from the heart that's seeking an answer from Scripture, and uh, we're happy to seek those out with, with you. So um, Pastor Scott, would you like to pray for us as we... I would be honored. Yeah, I love talking to God. Let's do it. <laughs> Father, I thank you so much that we have this opportunity to be able to hear from you during this time. And Lord, the, the best way for us to hear from you, really the only reliable way for us to hear from you, is through your word. Thank you, Lord, that it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you, Lord, uh, that when we truly understand what a blessing it is, we'll look at it like Job did, that it was more uh, precious to him than his necessary food. I pray that, that you'd feed your people spiritually with the bread of life. I pray, Father, that uh, we would come away uh, built up in our faith in you, uh, informed about how to apply the principles of your word to our lives, but also comforted uh, the, the amazing message of your uh, glorious grace that we see woven through every page and embodied in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God. Uh, please, Lord, uh, make yourself manifest during this time. We pray that uh, the questions uh, that come in uh, would be guided and superintended by you. We pray that the answers we give uh, would touch people from the heart. And uh, we pray that you be honored in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That is true. Now, 
It is a special day in Jewish reckoning, is it not? Yeah, well, uh, the second special day, I reckon. Uh, for those of you not familiar with all of this, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles has kicked off. Uh, there were three pilgrim feasts uh, that uh, all Jewish males were commanded uh, to appear before the Lord in the place that he chooses. Uh, one of them was uh, Passover. Uh, the other was uh, the uh, uh, Feast of, uh, of uh, Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost. And, of course, Tabernacles. Uh, tabernacles, uh, the, the word literally means booths. It's called Sakat in uh, Hebrew. Uh, was a commemoration, uh, an acted-out uh, commemoration of the wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel and how God met their needs uh, throughout this uh, uh, particular part of their lives or to remember how faithful God had been to them over the 40 years of provision that God had worked out in the wilderness. Uh, so the Feast of Tabernacles has uh, some really significant uh, 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 insight for us uh, biblically. Uh, part of it uh, was uh, that uh, some really amazing events uh, in the Old Testament took place on uh, the opening of the Feast of Tabernacles. One of them uh, was the dedication of Solomon's temple. That uh, took place during that time. Also, uh, if you've ever read through the book of Nehemiah, the reading of God's word that Ezra the scribe did from uh, a uh, built-up platform, uh, sending out the uh, priest to give people the sense and meaning of the scripture that uh, really uh, began, I think uh, Chuck Swindoll called it a revival at the Watergate, uh, because that's where this took place uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, the people heard God's word first. They were cut to the quick by it, which God's word has a way of doing. And then uh, Ezra and Nehemiah encouraged the people uh, to uh, not mourn or weep, but to send portions to those who didn't have anything. And, and the, the famous line there, that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Feast of Tabernacles is always a, a celebration of the joy of seeing God work within our lives. Uh, it reminds me of a, a statement I read a few weeks ago uh, by Pastor Chuck Smith that really uh, uh, impacted my life. He defined joy as the emotional response we have to the perception of God working within our lives. And, and I think that's a great definition of that. And that's what Tabernacles was all about. Tabernacles as well was really significant uh, in the life of Jesus in uh, three different ways, uh, I believe. First, uh, there are those who wonder why uh, we have an account of the birth of Jesus in Matthew and in Luke, uh, but we don't really have it in the Gospel of John. Well, there are those who believe that we do, in a sense, have the birth of Jesus mentioned in the Gospel of John when we're told the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten Son of God, uh, full of grace and, and glory. Uh, there are those who believe that uh, what John was hinting at was that Jesus was born during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, there's always a big hoo-ha about when Jesus was born. Was he born on a cold winter's night, which was so deep? Uh, if he was born during Tabernacles, he would have been born during the fall. But uh, when we uh, take a look at that scripture, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, the word dwelt literally means tabernacled. Uh, among us. And so when we take a look, for instance, at uh, the other major feasts of, uh, of the Jewish calendar, when we uh, take a look, for instance, 
at Yom Kippur. We see the Lord's atonement being uh, spoken of there. Uh, when we look at uh, Pentecost, we see that that's when Jesus uh, ascended into heaven. Uh, you know, when we uh, take a look at the other feasts, they are all significant in that they speak about the, the ministry of Jesus. There are those who believe that this is a uh, picture of his birth. In the middle of the ministry of Jesus, we are told uh, his famous statement, uh, on the great day of the feast, Jesus cried out, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For the one who believes in me, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Uh, well, the feast being mentioned there was the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles, people would camp out, if you will. They would make booths, if you will. And, and I imagine it was probably a, a highlight moment uh, for the uh, children uh, during that time because they got to camp out and they got to uh, hear their parents explain why they were camping out. But there were also, during this time, uh, really vivid uh, celebrations of God's provision, including the fact that every day during the Feast of Tabernacles from the temple steps, they would pour forth a uh, jug of water and it would run down the steps as a picture of God providing uh, water for the people of Israel during their wilderness wanderings. On the last day of the feast, this would be repeated seven times. And so on that great day of the feast, what Jesus was saying is, hey, 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 here's what that was all about. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, the Apostle Paul speaks about that the people of Israel, uh, they, were, uh, they went through the, the, the Red Sea and so on, and they were followed by the, and given water from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that that rock was Christ. Uh, in other words, the the, the uh, picture that we see there, and and it's so vivid uh, that uh, and and so important that we see that the first time uh, that uh, the people of Israel needed uh, water in the wilderness, Moses was instructed to strike the rock, and water would come forth from it. Now, the last time we see this picture of God providing water in a miraculous way for the people of Israel in the wilderness was when God said to Moses, speak to the rock, and I'll bring forth water for you. Well, this was kind of the end of Moses' 40 years of dealing with these folks, and he got a little bit uh, bent out of shape because they were ready to kill him again at the end of 40 years. You'd probably get a little bent out of shape yourself. Again. Yeah, but, uh, but Moses uh, basically said, must we bring forth water for you? And he struck the rock, and water came forth. Well, the people got their water, but God basically said, Moses, a word over here. And he said, because you did not honor me before the people, you're not going to enter the promised land with them. Now, why was God so bad about that? Well, once again, Moses ruined a beautiful prophetic picture of what Messiah would come to do and the, the living water of the Holy Spirit. The Messiah was struck once so that living water would flow, but he didn't need to be struck again. All one needed to do was ask, and one would receive that blessing. Luke chapter 11, verse 13, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for him? So because Moses, in a sense, messed up this vivid picture by striking the rock twice instead of just speaking to it in faith, uh, God restricted him from going into the promised land. Now, obviously, Moses did get into the promised land uh, about uh, 1,500 years later, 
uh, when uh, the uh, uh, the incident uh, on Mount Hermon took place, uh, the uh, transfiguration of Jesus, Moses and Elijah appearing, talking to him there. And I think if we talked to Moses and asked, uh, would you uh, have rather gone into the wilderness, uh, the uh, promised land with the people then, or gone into the promised land when Jesus was there, I'm sure he would have said, when Jesus was there six days a week and twice on Sunday. So uh, we see a really uh, beautiful picture there. Along with that, we also see that the Feast of Tabernacles is significant, not just in the first coming of Jesus, not just in the middle of his ministry, but also during the second coming of Jesus. Uh, we're told in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, that we will, in the thousand-year reign of Christ, after he returns, celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So very relevant uh, for all of us going forward. In Zechariah 14 and verse 16, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whatever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts on them, uh, uh, the Lord of hosts on them, there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up, and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the feast of tabernacles. So uh, once again, God says you're going to come, and it's a very, very serious thing that should be there. Now, Sean, why do you suppose of all the feasts of Israel does God lay such stress on that one, especially after the second coming of Christ? Well, not only is it important to remember if God's going to judge somebody, it's because A, they know better, and B, they're aware of the consequences in advance. That's the first thing. This is in writing. But knowing the violation of it is not only deliberate, they know what's going to result. It's also important to remember that the idea of a tabernacle, of a dwelling place, is like all of the other prophetically significant holidays in the Jewish calendar, Tabernacles is meant to be the literal fulfillment of what is happening at that time that Zechariah is talking about. That the tabernacle of God is with men, and they will dwell with them, and he, they shall, or he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. That's Revelation 21. But it's also relevant in Revelation chapter 20 that they will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. So during the time in which the obviously new heavens and new earth haven't been introduced yet, but at a time where Jesus is on the earth. They have no excuse to reject Jesus' authority. In fact, in Psalm 2, we're told that he'll be rebuking nations afar off. So uh, not really uh, tolerating people being yeah. fast and loose with the law like we see today. Yeah. The, the UN won't be a place of suggestion or slander against Israel. God's going to go, you're going to um, do what I tell you to because it's not only right, but you know it's wrong to do otherwise. But the point being made is just that the tabernacles, that are being acted out is the fact that God is doing that with you right now. And as we note in reference often in the gospel accounts, there was a parable that noted this punchline, to him whom much is given, much shall be required. They, like the people of Israel, were seeing and will see a lot of miracles and will be held accountable for that. The reason why we don't oftentimes see weather phenomena and direct judgment for our actions isn't because we're so holy it's because God's not holding us accountable to anything in writing. Yeah. The people of Israel, they not only were held accountable to what they read in Exodus in writing, but also were given signs and miracles, and thus the penalties were more immediate and more serious. But if, on the other hand, you're speaking to people during the uh, 
uh, not only Millennial Kingdom, but when the Feast of Tabernacles are literally acting out what's happening at that time, they are going to be held accountable for it in a very serious way. Now, note it won't be you know a breakout of some flesh-eating bacteria or something. They're not going to get rain. But the point needs to be understood. God's not judging people without them knowing this is the judgment. This is the reason why they're being judged and that they weren't given fair warning. But the good news is, like every single mention of judgment in Scripture, God includes with the prophetic prediction of them being judged, you're also going to be restored. You're also going to be given a new name that will be beloved by me. So, Yeah, and uh, you know, I think the other thing that we see in the Feast of Tabernacles, particularly as it relates to the time after Jesus returns, people say, well, why is there going to be this thousand-year reign of Christ? I mean, why doesn't he just return? Uh, say, here I am, judge uh, the Antichrist, the false prophet, uh, toss Satan uh, into uh, not just an abyss, but just give him his last rewards, and set up judgment there, just go straight on into the new heavens and the new earth. Why this thousand-year period of time? Well, because God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He also made promises to the people of Israel. He made promises to King David, that he was going to fulfill very, very literally uh, for the people of Israel. There is going to be a Davidic king. There is going to be a rebuilt temple where temple sacrifice will be reinstituted, not in order to take away sin, but to commemorate the fact that Jesus paid the price for our sins. So uh, uh, as uh, one of our tour guides in Israel, Steve Joss, was fond of uh, reminding us, if God doesn't fulfill all of his promises that he has made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and and so on, uh, then uh, he's a shyster. He is not someone who can be trusted. And so when people say, oh, he's done with Israel, God uh, has just moved on to the church, nothing could be further from the truth. We will see these good promises, for instance, that we see in passages like Isaiah chapter 11, fulfilled quite literally, for the people of Israel during that time. And uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is going to be a reminder of the faithfulness of God, bringing the people of Israel out of the wilderness into the Promised Land, and a reminder, not just to the people of, of God, Israel, during that time, but to the whole world, that God is a God who keeps his promises. And that's something that's encouraging to all of us, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. We've got a lot of questions coming in already thank you for being part of the broadcast everybody we have a question from don uh joining us through our through our website or 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 church app one of those two um his name is don he's asking what is columbus day should christians honor columbus he's native american he says some of his people don't like columbus so is that something we should observe that is also a holiday today yeah, uh, as far as the significance of Columbus Day, won't go into the semantics because there's a lot of historical revisionism and we don't want to be taken down for something that's not necessarily worth being taken down for. What I will say is like any other extra-biblical holiday, spiritual or secular, uh, commemoration of either local history, continental history, or even immediate history. It'd be like asking uh, President's Day or, you know... Um, asking about uh, Labor Day or any of these other details. Very secondary issues would celebrating these things put us in solidarity with the quote-unquote atrocities committed at those times. And I think on a person-by-person basis, 
regardless of whether or not the statements made against or for Columbus are true or false, I think it's important to note the emphasis onto what you're doing and why is a matter of conscience. And scripturally, we'd support that not just in terms of Sabbath days and festivals, which were the controversy that Paul was addressing, but also any day that we choose to celebrate. The question isn't what or when, it's why. In Romans chapter 14, and again, this is verse 5, says, One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, here's the kicker, Don. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord and gives God thanks. He who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat and gives God thanks. Punchline, for none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might, note, be Lord, both of the dead and the living. So it notes the application, verse 10. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we are all shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then he goes on to quote the uh, book of Isaiah, I believe it is, to emphasize the point. So giving our account to the Lord, the question isn't, did you celebrate Columbus Day? It's, why did you celebrate that day? Was it to celebrate the extermination of indigenous groups in North America? It's kind of a weird thing to celebrate. But if, on the other hand, you were just saying, I just got off work and I didn't have to make it more complicated than that, we could spend time in God's word. We could be, note the passage, thankful for the fact we live in a land that was discovered ironically by accident, not just by my ancestor, Leif Erikson, but others in in a quest to find a simpler way to India. Thank you, Islam. But the point being made is just that. What you're doing and why. If you're stumbled by the fact that Columbus was, of course, responsible for orchestrating civil wars in order to not only allow him and his conquistadors to, in fact, uh, settle in a land they had discovered for whatever purpose they had, but also perhaps not buying into the propaganda, just saying, um, a man in history made a discovery, and that's about all I want to think on the matter. That's allowed. That's encouraged. What matters is your heart before the Lord. If you stand in good conscience before it and not observing it, Don, understand you're not sinning any more than the person who is celebrating it is. Yeah, and, uh, you know, again, there's uh, an awful lot of uh, stuff about Indigenous Peoples Day uh, uh, on uh, uh, Twitter right now and uh, the various social media uh, outlets and a lot of people really angry and saying that no one should ever honor a man like Christopher Columbus, and, and they go on and on about it. You can, Anger on Twitter? You, unheard of. You, you can access all of that and see that side of it. However, in the interest of... Uh, uh, a, bal- a fair and balanced look at all of this, uh, you know, I highly recommend you take a look at uh, a devotional that D. James Kennedy's ministries put out today about uh, Christopher Columbus. Was Columbus a Christian? Uh, you know, again, he was a fallen, sinful individual. Uh, I think it's uh, disconcerting to me that sometimes we try to evaluate historical people and the decisions and the things that they made based upon uh, our particular set of sensibilities that we have in the here and now today, culturally anyway. Obviously, we want to evaluate these things uh, and, uh, and where people fit into things scripturally. But 
consider a few things uh, about Christopher Columbus. Most of the time, people will say the only reason that he sailed to uh, the New World was for gold and glory. But hmm. listen to what Columbus himself said about his reason for his journey. He said, it was the Lord who put it into my mind to sail to the Indies. The fact that the gospel must be preached to so many lands, that is what convinced me. He said, no one should fear to undertake any task in the name of our Savior if it is just and if the intention is purely of his holy service. Well, I'm not going to sit down and try to justify everything that went on uh, that as a result of Columbus's voyages or what his uh, followers and fellow uh, sailors did during those particular times, but I throw this out to you. The first landing place that Columbus went into in the New World, he named San Salvador. That literally means holy savior. He named the next place Veracruz, which means one cross, and the next La Navidad, which means the nativity or Christmas. He came to an island with three hills on it and called it Trinidad, meaning the Trinity. So uh, again, uh, we can tell that he did have a, uh, a focus in on the things of God and what that's all about. Are we going to see Christopher Columbus in heaven? Uh, I would tend to think so, but that decision obviously is always made by the Lord. So uh, I think the, the wise thing is not to get our hackles up about different things. Obviously, uh, there have been mistakes that have been made by people down through history, but I think uh, we need to have a fair and balanced view of these things and not just write people off because it seems to be the trendy thing to do. Thank you, you so much. Yeah. Don, thank you for your question and for being part of our show. We very much appreciate it. We have a question from a Bible News Nut. I don't think that's their given name at birth. But uh, <laughs> it says, from, from the Jerusalem Post, Russia wants to cut ties with the United States and build its own space station. Is this biblical prophecy at all? Nope. Um, or in any way more division? Nope. Thank you. Well, you know, what I would say, and, and I think uh, the, the best answer to all of this is, and, and I love I love the, uh, the, the, the the tag there, you know, the biblical uh, news Bible, nut. Yeah, Bible yeah. news nut. Bible news nut. <laughs> um, you know, I think that's a thoroughly biblical way to look at the news. Uh, Jesus said, when you see these things begin to happen, look up where your salvation draws near. We've got to have an idea about what things are going to happen if we're going to fulfill that kind of uh, heavenly heads-up perspective, you know, the idea that the Lord could come at any time, and, and looking at the news and what's going on in the news can certainly uh, encourage us in that direction. However, we've talked quite a bit before about the danger of what's known as newspaper eschatology, uh, and that means looking at the newspaper and saying, okay, everything that's happening in the news must have some biblical uh, prophetic significance to it. Is the war going on between Russia and Ukraine prophetically significant? I would say no for this reason. The prophetically significant events that we see in this world all revolve around the epicenter, as our good friend Joel Rosenberg calls it. They all revolve around Israel. Now, will Russia one day have a prophetic role to play that will impact Israel directly? Well, obviously, in uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, we are told that Russia and the tribal groups that make up modern Russia are going to lead a confederation of nations, including specifically Persia or modern Iran, into an invasion of Israel. Now, we believe on this program uh, that this invasion, known as the Gog and Magog invasion, is going to happen 
during the tribulation period, it's probably going to be that which causes the first three and a half years of peace the Antichrist is going to bring in to come to an end. God is going to intervene supernaturally and destroy these invading armies uh, on the mountains of Israel. But there's a couple of things about it that you need to take into account. They're only going to invade when they see Israel's guards and defenses completely down. Uh, you can say a lot of things about Israel right now, but their guard ain't down. Uh, so, you know, when people say, is this going to be the start of the Gog and Magog invasion? No, no, and no. The, I believe that Israel prophetically is going to make a strong covenant uh, with the Antichrist for seven years. Daniel chapter 9 speaks of this. Uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 28 speaks about Israel making a covenant with death and saying that that was going to be where they find their security. Uh, and so Israel has to enter into that in order to come into this guard-down, defenseless state. Uh, will Russia and will Iran have a role to play in that last day's invasion? Yeah. Do we see this coalition and this, uh, this uh, alliance coming together in a prophetically significant way between Russia and Iran? Yes. But that doesn't mean that everything that Iran does, like lobbing missiles at Iraq over the weekend, or everything that Russia does, lobbing missiles into Kiev uh, over the weekend, is prophetically significant. Now, in a broad stroke sense, we can say that's wars and rumors of wars for sure. Uh, we can say that this world is not going to know peace until the Prince of Peace returns for sure. But uh, we need to be very, very careful uh, about... Uh, reading everything that we see into the newspaper into a prophetic uh, lens. Uh, sometimes it comes across to the world a little chicken little-ish, a uh, little sky is falling-ish. Uh, we have to be very discerning about that and really know what prophecy has to say and really focus in on Israel and what it has to say uh, in order to kind of get that right. So uh, good on you. Two thumbs up for always looking up and looking at the newspaper and saying, is there something significant prophetically going on here? My advice is focus, focus, focus in on what's going on in Israel, and you won't go too far wrong. Uh, that's going to be, uh, Israel is always the straw that stirs the drink as far as God's prophetic plans are concerned. Mm. And, uh, you know, the Lord does tell us to look at birth pains that are going on in this world, wars, rumors of wars, plagues, pestilences, famines, earthquakes in various places, increasing in frequency and intensity as the big day draws near. So we need to pay attention to that, but uh, not to see everything that's going on uh, because uh, a, a particular entity uh, is mentioned later on in, in prophecy, that, it, that it's somehow prophetically significant. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much again for that question. A uh, question from Raphael. Would God have given Moses a third test? I was thinking of the Trinity. God told him to strike the rock, God the Father, speak to the rock, God the Son, and believe the rock would provide water, the Holy Spirit. Thanks, I've heard this hypothetical before. Well, you guys I'm familiar with that? Herb? I'm sure you heard whenever we deal with hypotheticals, we always have the same answer. That's not what happened, so let's stick with what's actually written in the text. Uh, when it comes to the purposes of the test, don't confuse the Father as being a representative of Jesus' sacrifice. Well, people do infer because of John chapter 10 and verse, um, let's start in verse 17, Jesus speaking, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself and have power to take it um, up again. Now note, this command, 
I have received from my father. The inference is, oh, so Jesus was commanded by the father to lay down his life. The father was the one who fulfilled the Genesis 22 picture. But notice Genesis 22. Did that involve Moses or did that involve not Moses? Not Moses. Not Moses. In (laughs) fact, it was so not Moses, he had an entirely different name. It was Abraham. I'm being facetious, of course. Uh, When we're talking about this, we also need to make sure that we don't get so enamored in biblical symbolism that we forget biblical literalism. The face value purposes of these sacrifices wasn't to provide a picture of the Trinity. There are passages that do that, and the Trinity is a true doctrine. But we do ourselves and others a disservice when we try to find things that just aren't there. You can open to a random passage and read a bunch of stuff into it, but we always, always, always encourage those who are reading, don't come up with a way to approach the text, approach the text, and then come up with ways on how you're supposed to make conclusions off of it. If, on the other hand, I say, okay, today I'm going to read something about the Trinity and then just open to something random in the book of Hosea, chapter 2 and verse 14, says, therefore, behold, I will allure her, I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. You see this idea of a relationship, that's the eternal relationship of the Father and the Trinity. Well, yeah, that's true, but there's a actual context of this God, total God, yeah. is speaking to the nation of Israel proper, not members of the Godhead speaking to one another. If you want that, we'd encourage you to go to Isaiah 48 and verse yeah. 16. So the point being made is this, there is a wrong answer to uh, how we approach the Scripture, and we want to equip you to do that as least amount of times in your life as possible. When it comes to hypotheticals, or what if God had created the world a different way? Well, if you know elephants could fly, we'd need steel umbrellas. Let's deal with the real world as we're dealing with it today. Could God have made something different? He didn't. Let's stick with that. Otherwise, we're either wasting time or, at best, not taking away what God intended to communicate to us. Because as we read in Second Peter chapter 1, there is in fact a mind behind this madness, yeah. just jokingly speaking, that the Holy Spirit was the one who intended to communicate something through this information and through the, uh, 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 what would be a, another word for leaving out, the omission of other information. We're not told the entirety of the history of Israel. We're told what was relevant to mankind's relationship with God and their interactions therein. If we're told everything about Jesus, the Apostle John said in John 21, there wouldn't be enough paper to make enough books to fit in all the libraries on the planet. What should have been written, but these things are written that you may believe. Let's stick with what has been written. That way we can take what was intended out of it. And that is, of course, the revelation of Jesus Christ. If we're wondering, well, what was the test of the Holy Spirit? Pretty much the devoiding nature. And if you want not a hypothetical, but a good parallelism, I'd recommend a book on the Exodus and its parallels to the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Mark, where it notes the significance of the fact that Moses, the mediator of Israel through the wilderness, had to die, and then a resurrection took place when Joshua, where he is the one who led them into the promised land, after the death and resurrection. That, I think, is something that you can look into, not as a hypothetical, but an actual, a symbol that ties into the actual nature of Christ. Yeah, and, and I, I really want to second uh, that, that application principle that you're talking about here. You know, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, the Apostle Paul said, Now these things, brethren, I figuratively transferred, figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sake, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one another against the other. 
you know, one of the dangers that we get into is we get into hypotheticals. You know, why did God do this? Or what if God had done this instead? Well, we have to deal with reality. And although it's an interesting mental exercise, I guess, to say why is the world the way it is? Why couldn't it be elsewhere? Hence, uh, why we have science fiction and, you know, these things. What if uh, Nazi Germany never fell? You know, what would the world be like? Uh, that sort of thing. What if Columbus never had sailed to uh, America? What would the world be? There was a question about that uh, in our, our uh, timeline as well. Well, we have to deal with what is, not what possibly could be. And, you know, I think it's really interesting that Paul says, don't think beyond what's written. You know, I, I got saved in 1973, and I've been reading the Bible virtually every day that I've been conscious since then. Uh, you know, I got a three-year master's degree in biblical languages and theology from Talbot Seminary. Uh, I've taught verse by verse through the Bible as a senior pastor uh, for going on 30 years right now. And I'm here to tell you something. I just feel like I've scratched the surface as far as the revelation that God has given to us. Uh, I, I don't really have time to be involved with speculations about, uh, well, what if there are robot Amazons from the planet Stinky Pinky out there? I don't know. The Bible doesn't mention them. So if you want to think about those sort of things, knock yourself out. I'd rather focus in on the truth that we have, not speculations about things that might be somewhere over the rainbow. I think it's far more productive. And quite frankly, if I'm reading the signs of the times, we don't have the luxury quite frankly, to get involved with these d distracting discussions. Uh, if you're burning daylight by sitting around uh, thinking about, well, why couldn't God have done this? What would have happened if uh, Adam and Eve had, had a different test or, or, or things? You can think about those things till the cows come home. Mm. But I'll tell you, if you're spending your time thinking about those things, chances are you're not praying for people. Chances are you're not studying God's word. Chances are you're not sharing your faith with a lost and dying world. Don't get distracted. That's Satan's number one tool. If he can't defeat you, he's going to distract you. And these hypotheticals sometimes, and I think you're right to kind of draw a hard line on some of those things from time to time, Sean. Um, you know, it's, it's just not productive. And so we're going to exhort you in a loving way, but in a firm way on this program, stay focused on the Word. Stay focused on sharing the Word, believing the Word, growing deep in the Word. Yesterday at Calvary Christian Fellowship, we talked about Simon Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Well, nobody told Peter the day before Pentecost, hey, you better study up because you're going to give this message tomorrow. You better read up on some scriptures because they're going to be asking you questions. Uh, no, Peter was so immersed in the Word of God that when he stood up uh, and explained the coming of the Holy Spirit, first he quotes from memory the book of Joel, Secondly, he gives a breakdown of Psalm 16. And then uh, thirdly, he caps it all off by quoting Psalm 110. Uh, you know, he's answering all of these questions. He's realizing, reading the room in his audience, that uh, there are going to be people, as soon as they hear about the resurrection, they're going to go, oh, no, the Bible doesn't teach the resurrection. The Sadducees, uh, obviously, were running the temple, were there listening to it. And he's going, no, 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 you're wrong. Here you go, Psalm 16, David believed in a resurrection. David wasn't the one being spoken of here. His coffin is right here. You can go see his tomb if you want. But uh, the Psalm 16, you will not uh, abandon my soul and shield, nor allow your Holy One to see decay. This was about Jesus. 
and he fulfilled the whole thing. Mm-hmm. How was Peter prepared to do that? He's in the Word. He was in the Word, and his moment came, and because he was in the Word, God could use him not to communicate his hot takes, but what the Word of God has to say. Mm. So let's be people that are in the Word. That's what this program's all about. Uh, that's what our ministry at Calvary Christian Fellowship is all about. We often say, uh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But you can salt the horse, make the horse thirsty. Well, sessions like this, uh, our services, our time in God's Word, we consider them horse-salting sessions. Not horse-assaulting sessions, but salting <laughs> sessions. We want to get you thirsty for the Word so you're in it. Not chasing off on rabbit trails that are going to lead you away from it. So, mm. end of sermon. Great. Yeah. No, good yeah. word. Yeah. Thank you for that. Raphael, thank you for being part of the broadcast and for your question. Uh, we have a question here from Peter. Peter. <laughs> I'll say it like you guys say it, Peter. Why does God wait to... <laughs> are you, are, are you mocking us Americans Peter, no, again? I'm, try, I'm trying to fit <laughs> I in. I think he is. In we all fairness, this, he is the English speaker. Here. That's right. Yeah. We had this discussion the other day when, when Peter was here, that when I say Peter in my accent, it sounds like I'm saying pizza, and it's been very confusing in the past. So No, I'm, anyway. I'm in favor of it. A neighbor uh, three doors up from where I live is from England, and his name is Peter. Oh, is that what And I make it a point to call him Peter. Peter, okay. Not, well, not Peter. <laughs> <laughs> but Peter, Peter, yeah, yeah. Hey, there. Well, Peter, you will remain Peter t- today <laughs> yeah. when it comes from my mouth. Anyway, anyway, your question. <laughs> we digress. We digress. Talk about hypotheticals. <laughs> Where we're digressing. Sorry, rabbit trails. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the question is from Peter, uh, and thank you for it. Why does God wait to judge others while He judges others swiftly? Is it because of the condition of their heart? Those who completely reject God and His Word a more swifter judgment, while those more open to God yet still behaving wrong. He withholds judgment for a time, like false teachers, um, some swift, others he waits. Yeah. That um, kind of idea. Two passages to keep in mind, Pita. The first is Psalm 73. <laughs> the second is Jeremiah 17. In Psalm 73, this was a psalm of Asaph. He was the worship leader at the time of King David. He was struggling with this conundrums, just wondering why is it that evil people tend to not only live the longest lives, that God delays judgment, but also that they seem to get the most out of this life, that they don't have long, hard lives, they have long, comfortable lives, while it seems the righteous get the reverse, if Hebrews 11 is anything to go off of. And he said in verse uh, verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to this generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Now notice his conclusion, Peter. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Notice not the end, not a carte blanche, everyone goes this far and no farther. God deals with in judgment the wicked and the righteous on an individual basis. Some saints he takes home early because they're just already that close to home anyway. Some saints he uses for prolonged periods of time, even if it costs them something, like the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John in particular. Uh, When we're talking about wicked people who sometimes see the consequence of their actions right away, or those who tend to uh, leave their mark on history and a black one at that, 
the question isn't what is or why isn't God doing something, it's what is God doing? Is he allowing this wickedness to exist for a time, maybe as an instrument of judgment? We see that exemplified through kings like Ahaz, or Ahab, rather, and uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and his judgment of Israel. We could note good people who were cut off very early, but for good reasons in noting the death of David's son, that he was not going to be this object of God's wrath but a recipient of his mercy very immediately. The interesting aspect and, uh, I guess, concern about all this, and you uh, basically answered your question in the second sentence there, Peter, but it was in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 10. Note the preface, there's one judge of all the earth, and we aren't him. And uh, I think it's Genesis chapter 18, notes the judge of all the earth. 1825. Yeah, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. That's an assumption that Abraham makes and one that isn't corrected. This is how we take it. Verse 10 of Jeremiah 17, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit, the natural outcropping of his doings. So when we see long-term or short-term consequences in our lives, there's one of two possibilities. It's this world giving us basically what we've set up for ourselves, or it's God keeping us on a short leash. That's for the believer. Yeah. Now, for the non-believer, they deal with God on one basis and one alone. You stand in judgment before me. Everything else, I'm not going to hold you accountable to it until the end. Sometimes he may give them more time because he wants them to be a vessel of wrath, to show just how patient God is, according to the book of Romans chapter 9, I believe. And then there's other passages. You did your master's thesis on this, so I'll defer to you. But the point also being made is there's other times where people are cut off short because they were interfering with God's people. We can see the prophet Balaam and his cursings of Israel. His judgment day came very quickly, but that's because, again, he knew better. Right. He was interfering with things that he really shouldn't have gotten involved with and didn't have to and was given a warning to but on and on it goes. The point being made, though, Peter, is when it comes to God's timing, you're right that he deals with people on a heart-by-heart and an individual basis, but he also sees a bigger picture. He knows what evil to allow and what evil to prevent. Because, again, not to step into hypotheticals, but people oftentimes are wondering, why doesn't God stop every atrocity? When they should be asking, why did God allow this atrocity, and which ones has he prevented? Because, note, a lot more gnarly stuff is going to happen yeah. during the tribulation when the Holy Spirit's restraint of evil is completely taken away, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us. So we have a lot to be thankful for in not only the mercy that we're shown, but also in the judgment that we're shown. The question isn't why, it's not a question of when, it's a question of who. God will do what is right. That's the working assumption. And again, Genesis 18, verse 27. 25. 25. Yeah, I've quoted that on a lot of memorials. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. keep that in mind, Peter, and let us know if that's clear. Yeah. Uh, you know, the only thing that I would add to that is, uh, even from a prophetic point of view, this whole idea about why doesn't God judge? You know, why does God let Jeffrey Dahmer do what Jeffrey Dahmer did? Uh, why did God allow the Manson family? Why did God allow the Holocaust? You know, Pam and I have been watching a number of documentaries on the, the Holocaust, and it's just horrendous, uh, the, the, the depravity of human nature on full display. And, and you know, you, you ask yourself that question, okay, why didn't he intervene? You know, why didn't he zap Hitler? You know, why didn't he, he, he certainly could have, but why didn't he? Why didn't he turn, you know, say, you know, we, gosh, I just, uh, on Sunday, 
the opportunity to talk to and pray with a just a wonderful woman in our congregation whose nephew was murdered downtown, uh, shot to death uh, on Saturday night. Uh, you know, why doesn't God turn those bullets to rubber? Uh, you know, why, why doesn't he do that? I had a, a friend of mine who was also a professor ask me that question. And, you know, I guess the only real answer you can give to that question is this. Sometimes God does intervene. God does miraculously step in. We've seen examples of that. But sometimes he does not for reasons he alone knows. Uh, we're not given all the information on these things. And uh, in a sense, I'm kind of glad we're not uh, because, you know, God doesn't need me to be his counselor. Mm. He doesn't need to run by me why he does and why he doesn't do things in certain sets of circumstances. You know, I think we all experience injustices in this world. I mean, one of the, the real stingy things to me uh, about uh, the run with cancer that I had was uh, when I was diagnosed with cancer, there was kind of this sense of injustice that and I was like, you, you got to be kidding me. I, I, I run every day. I, I, you know, I you know, watch my weight. I, I, I eat kale, for goodness sake. You know, and you're telling me I got cancer? You know, does that seem fair at that point? You know, and, and the moment that I think we find ourselves drifting towards the why me sort of thing, uh, you know, there's this other voice in the back of our head that goes, well, why not you? Uh, I mean, in light of the fact that each and every one of us are fallen sinful human beings in rebellion against the true and living God who created all things perfectly good, uh, and that we've all ratified that rebellion in ways large and small by taking lives into our own hands and, and saying, God, well, you know, I say, you know, you say this about, you know, my morality and uh, the way I should be conducting myself, but fooey on you, I'm going to do my own thing. Uh, you know, why not? Uh, you know, the, the, the issue isn't, you know, why is there suffering in the world? The big issue is why isn't there more suffering mm. in the world in light of the mess that we've made uh, of this world? You know, prophetically, uh, this idea about why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't he turn, you know, the, the bullets to rubber and, and so on? Uh, in First, Second Peter chapter 3, uh, we are told that in the last days, this is a prophecy, that there will be scoffers who will come walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now that can be inferred two ways. One of them is the idea of uniformitarianism, that, that uh, you know, everything can be explained by natural process and that God doesn't intervene. The other is kind of this scoffing, edgy sort of thing like, well, why doesn't God intervene if he's out there? You know, I must be more moral than God because I think he should intervene. And why does he allow this child, uh, you know, to suffer in this way and so on? You know, but Peter has an interesting answer to this. He says, for this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, uh, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded by water. Uh, what uh, Peter's saying is, okay, you want God to directly intervene? Mm. He did once before, the flood of Noah. And I'm not sure we'd like to see him do the same thing again in our day, right? And then he says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. What Peter is saying is, God's going to pull the trigger again. 
he's going to judge again. Mm. And when he judges, it's going to be something. It's not going to be water this time. It's going to be fire. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Mm -hmm. Why hasn't the hammer dropped? You know, why don't the bullets turn to rubber? Well, once God starts to intervene, he doesn't do it piecemeal. He doesn't do it, you know, okay, I'm going to do it here and not do it here. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis said, when the author walks on the stage, the play's over. Mm. Uh, God is going to invade, but what's the use at that point uh, of saying that you're going to join his side when you've already been fighting against him all your life? He, he used the analogy. We really want to think very much of a uh, Frenchman who uh, cooperated with the Nazis until he saw the Normandy invasion going, okay, I'm going to switch sides now. Mm. Uh, you know, God is going to invade. And he is going to judge. Uh, but, uh, you know, what are you going to think when you see the whole natural world melting away and something comes crashing in, C.S. Lewis said, uh, that will either strike irresistible love or irresistible horror into the heart of every creature? Mm. That's not the time to decide. Now is the time to decide. God is giving us the chance to choose his side. Mm. We must take it or leave it, C.S. Lewis said. So, you know, if there's anyone that's outraged at the awful things that go on in this world, it's got to be the perfect, true, and holy living God. Uh, but God is also incredibly patient. Uh, you know, the, the, the story is told of a guy named Robert Ingersoll. He used to do uh, anti-Christian crusades back in the 1800s, and he was very effective at it. He used to get packed audiences and preach Darwinism and mock the God of the Bible. And his killer illustration that he would use at the end was he would stand up and say, okay, if the God of the Bible is true, he knows that I hate him, then I'm a blasphemer. Let him strike me down before you all in one minute if he is real. And everybody would go, ooh, man, you know, and they would count it down and be like 10, 9, 8, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And there was Ingersoll standing there as healthy as the day is long. And people go, oh, man, that proves everything. Until one night at one of Ingersoll's crusades, uh, a Christian pastor was there. And he did the whole three, two, one thing. And uh, then uh, the Christian pastor stood up and said, only a fool would believe he could, he could exhaust the patience of God in one minute. Mm. And only a fool would think he'd take orders from such a colonel with a bad attitude. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. But a lot of people wonder about that. And uh, we're not going to get all the details. Why God did what he did? Why didn't God do something over here. Why does God miraculously heal one person? Why does God take someone home? You don't know. Yeah. We really don't. Right. But God's got it. He understands. Yeah. Question from Sev, which is, is related. Um, will we know, or oh, more questions have come in. Where am I here? Will we know everything in heaven? Will every question be addressed? I think if that's not a promise, that's 13 that says um, we will know as we are known we will know not that we'll be informed to the point of all knowledge that's uh, another trap people get into will we eventually achieve omniscience in heaven no the whole point of heaven isn't to have your questions answered it's to finally fellowship with jesus the dumb questions that we ask in this life will not be a concern anymore when we're in heaven make sure you don't infer to god promises he hasn't actually made and speaking of which one more thing i want to address before we sign off uh, got another false prophet uh, doing his land office business 
and he's done this a number of times in our comments sections. And I do call him a false prophet because he has made number a number of predictions setting dates for the rapture. Now, uh, obviously, we would cite Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 through 22. Two, where it would note that if the prophet who has spoken in my name falsely, how we know who it is, says, if what he has said does not come to pass. Right. He has posted this not once, not twice, not five times, but eight times now on our page, predicting, claiming that individuals in his life have received visions that the rapture is going to happen. Oh, but he's speaking so spiritual. Oh, he's trying to encourage people by getting their eyes on heaven. You're lying in the name of God. So... When it comes to what is actually happening here, how do we know that the rapture is not going to be a date we can anticipate preceding it? Yeah, well, Mark chapter 13 and verse 32, and that might sound a little strong, but as you mentioned, we've interacted with this guy. We've, he has made predictions of days and hours before. We've told him very lovingly and yet very firmly where this is wrong. And yet he continues to peddle this, and I'm sure he's going to readjust and give us another prediction of another day uh, later on. Jesus said, but that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, or at the crowing of the rooster in the morning, lest coming he should find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. He doesn't say predict. He doesn't say, you know, divide the number of consonants in the Old Testament by whether Adam had a belly button or not, and you can figure out the day of the Lord's return. No. Uh, Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour, and in Greek, let me tell you what that means. What does it mean? No one knows the day. Amen. What a great way to end our show today. Thank you so much for being part of the broadcast. We will see you next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.